So we're looking at chapter 4 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is the uh, chapter on creation. Paragraph 1 is about the creation of all things. In general, cha- uh, paragraph 2 zeroes in on the creation of mankind, man and woman in particular. Uh, this really fits really nicely when you look at the ordering of the chapters. We just had a chapter on God's decrees. And it makes sense to follow that. If God is going to decree the salvation of mankind, then he naturally, he needs to create the world and space in which that redemption is going to take place. And this is followed then by the chapter on providence, such that if God creates the world, he's then going to govern and rule the world by his providence. So this is where we fit the chapter on creation. We could summarize paragraph one in saying that God created all things for his own glory And we could summarize paragraph two in saying that God created mankind in his image, upright, but able to fall. This this chapter was not provoked or came to be through all the sorts of creation debates that we would have in our day. This is, of course, before Darwin um, and before all those controversies that would come and follow. Uh, As far as the polemical picture of different debates at this time, the main opponent of what is proposed here as the orthodox view of creation was coming from the Sassinians, who had a few um, odd ideas about creation. They thought that only the Father created, because they did deny the Trinity, but they actually said that he didn't create out of nothing. They thought that the Father actually created out of some pre-existing substance, and others thought that he actually created out of his own nature. Uh, They also had wrong ideas about man. They said man being in God's image, all that the image of God meant was the fact that he had dominion over the creatures. And they also believed that God created man mortal and that death was not a result of the fall, but man was mortal from the start. So that was the only um, opposing view that seems to be explicitly targeted in the confession. So let's look at paragraph one of chapter four which reads, it pleased God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days and all very good. Uh, I want to just ask some questions of this paragraph as we look at it. First, let's look at the who. Who created the world. We're told here, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And in scripture, we see verses that attribute creation to each of the persons of the Godhead individually. Some verses attribute creation solely to the Spirit, others solely to the Son, others solely to the Father, and others to the Father through the Son, or to the Father through the Spirit. Uh, There does seem to be a preeminence given to creation being the work of the Father, but it is a work of all three persons of the Godhead. That's the who. The what. What was created? Well, all things visible and invisible. The visible world we see in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, all these things around us, but also invisible things. You can think of logic and reason, mathematics, philosophy, ideas that are real things that exist in creation, but are not visible. These are invisible created realities. When did God create? He created in the beginning, the beginning of time, we might say. And he created, as the confession says, in the space of six days. Uh, Some have tried to import 
popular theories of longer days back into the confession, but under scrutiny that hasn't really held up the all the study that's been done of the views of those who framed and made up the assembly, um, it's only been found so far that these men held to literal 24-hour days. There's been no evidence so far that any member of the assembly held to anything other than a 24-hour literal day. Uh, how did God create? God created out of nothing, ex nihilo we might say, by his power. Everything coming from God. Why did God create? Uh, This is really, I think, one of the most significant points for us to take from this chapter of the confession. Because this is the meaning of life. This is the meaning of all created reality. One of the biggest questions we're going to encounter in our pastoral context. We often give the answer from the first question of the shorter catechism. But here's a different way to go about it. It says that God created for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. God created to manifest his glorious power, his glorious wisdom, and his glorious goodness. Um, and this, these terms weren't picked arbitrarily. Uh, if you look in chapter 33, paragraph 2, it mentions that God appointed the day of judgment for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy and justice. Redemption manifests the glory of God's mercy and justice, but creation manifests the glory of God's power, wisdom, and goodness. And interestingly, if you think of those terms, those each relate to one of those classical arguments for God's existence. Creation manifests God's power as the cause of all things. Only an almighty power could create of nothing. God's wisdom, the incredible intricate design and beauty we see in creation, reflects the, the, the telos, the design of God's wisdom. And also God's goodness, the fact that we understand good and evil in this world, that we have a sense of morality, can understand goodness, truth, and beauty, comes from God in creation that he made good. God's wisdom, power, and beauty are manifested in creation. And if we were to apply this paragraph, the first thing I would say is that we need to remember to read creation, to see creation as it were, to be the work of the author, and that everything we see, every manifestation of beauty, every manifestation of God's wisdom, as we walk in nature, as we watch planet Earth documentaries, as we drive and see the clouds, that ought to elevate our hearts and lift them back to the creator who we see who could have such power other than God who has such wisdom to create the hand the eye the mind other than the God of all creation and it ought to lead us frequently to worship so we need to read creation but then also remember to enjoy creation God created the world good and even in first Timothy 6 we're told that God gave gives us all things richly to enjoy and this is actually speaking in the context of wealth So we ought not feel bad when we enjoy creation because it was created for this purpose. We're not Gnostics who see the flesh and world as bad. So in the busyness of your studies, remember to enjoy food, enjoy your spouse, enjoy playing soccer Monday nights when we gather together as good gifts from the Lord. And thirdly, we see here, I think, a call to steward creation. Man was created to cultivate the garden. God doesn't want wastelands. And the principle that we ought to care about creation is, in my mind, undebatable. Um, 
And in our day, we see there's lots of ways we can debate um, the science of what's true, problem or not, or policy issues, application issues. But theologically, we ought all to be on the same page that we care about God's creation as it manifests the glory of its creator. We ought to be concerned about such things. And really, um, the anti-environmental stance in predominant American Christianity comes from dispensationalism. Um, a false theology that says God's going to burn the whole world and it's just going to go to hell in a handbasket and we're going to jump out, so why would we spend our time on these things anyways? And that's not what we believe and teach here at this school. But anyways, uh, next chapter, next paragraph. Um, I won't read it just for lack of time, but uh, if I was to summarize, there's too much to unpack, and then I'll, I want to zero in on one part in particular. Uh, just summarize saying that God... Um, on the sixth day, God made mankind male and female. Note, there's only two genders that God created. And that man was made in the image of God, which is, that's the point I want to zero in on. Take a look at a little bit more in depth. And that they were made upright, but having the ability to fall. So even though man was made perfect, he was made mutably perfect. That is, he was able to change, able to transgress and fall by virtue of his mutability. And by virtue of his free will. Um, uh, opposed to common misconception, reformed people do believe in free will. It's not a myth or heresy. We're going to have a whole chapter on it in our confession, which we'll look at. But we, we believe in free will, just of a particular variety. Uh, God gave Adam and Eve one negative prohibition, not to eat of the tree. And I love this last, the last line here. It says um, that... They were, man was happy in his communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. This is the encapsulating thought of that time, that man was happy in his communion with God. Mankind was created to be happy in God. So presently, if we're going to bring this on to our day, here I think are the essential things for us to take away. The first is regarding anthropology, the nature of man, that man is a composite being. That is, we're made of two parts, body and soul. And just acknowledging that puts us outside of the mainstream of secular materialistic culture that doesn't believe in the existence of a soul, considers it um, a myth from a bygone age that we don't need anymore. But to acknowledge that man has an immaterial part is just significant for us to remember and hold on to. But then what do we see in the soul of man? Secondly, this is where I want to spend the rest of our time. That man was made in the image of God. And this is an important concept for us because this gets used and abused in a lot of different ways in a lot of different church traditions. So I think it's important for us to understand what the confession means when it talks about man made in the image of God. What it says is that the image of God consisted in the endowment of man's soul with three things. Knowledge righteousness, and holiness. Now, this would make more sense to us if we understood the classical categories that they were using in this time of what the soul consists, coming from Greek philosophy, that the soul of man consists of three parts, his understanding, his will, and his affections, the three parts of the soul. And when you see these words, they actually align up here very well. So when man was created with true knowledge, that is his understanding was enlightened as to what is true reality, as to who God is and who he is in light of God. True understanding. But then also righteousness in the will. Man was made with a will, a wanter, to choose what is right. 
His will was righteous. And then thirdly, his affections were holy affections, not corrupt and impure affections. But this is what happens then in the fall, that this image of God, the soul being painted, as it were, with true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness is defaced. Uh, I really like the illustration Wilhelmus Abrockel used. He said, the soul is like a canvas, a beautiful canvas upon which the image of God is painted. And that image of God, the knowledge, righteousness, and holiness is disgraced and lost in the fall. Though maybe we see imprints of it. But then in the new creation, once again through Christ, our minds are illumined with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Our will is made to be righteous, to desire and pursue holy things. And our affections are redeemed from corruption and made to actually love God. To love the one who is our soul's creator. That image is regained. But the thing we miss is that there's two parts here. Is that even though this image of God, this painting is defiled, the canvas still remains. Man still has a soul, even in his fallen state. He's still a rational being with this special gift of having a spirit. A soul that is capable of reflecting the creator. The capability of the soul of man to reflect God the creator is an incredible gift. And in Christ, it can be regained. So this helps us solve that tension of how is God's image lost, but then also how is it maintained? It's maintained in the faculties and abilities of the soul, but it's lost in that those faculties of the soul have been defiled and need to be renewed. And even still, that painting on each of us is being made more beautiful and more glorious as we're conformed to the image of Christ in all things. A a final application here. Um, Firstly, in the church, when we recognize that we're ministering to beings that are body and soul, we remember then that God gave us officers to uh, minister to each category. God gives us elders to minister to the soul and deacons to minister to the body. So let's not forget that ministry to the physical needs is a part of God's created design for us. Um, And then secondly, I think this is really significant here, just the fact that this biblical anthropology, it gives us such a compelling narrative as we engage this culture, this culture that sees man as an accident and as an animal with no real purpose. And it's leading to meaninglessness and nihilism that's infecting everything. But for us as Christians to come along and be able to hold these three things up to our culture, One, that we're the only one that can give a true account of human value and dignity. We're the only ones that can give a true account of human evil and sin and understand that. And we're the only ones that can give a true account of human meaning and human purpose. And that's a compelling narrative. And that's what we need to leverage in our ministries as we talk to people.